right. Thanks for tuning in on your podcast platform of choice to City State uh, podcast, not radio anymore. Um, back from another long hiatus. This is uh, Pat Smith. Man, it's good to be back. What's going on, guys? It's Patrick Puma. Uh, it's good. Um, lots happened since we left. Uh, are we going to talk about some of that stuff? I don't, uh, what are we talking about today? Henry, what's up? What's going on over there? Hey, Patrick Henry here. Um, it's been a while. Yeah. And we're all in the room together. I know. It's crazy. So, we got mics. But thanks to Patrick uh, Puma and the, the Urban Design Studio, we've got a, like like a kind of like the beginnings of a, of a studio setup in here. We're off of Teams, <laughs> off of Zoom. Uh, hopefully the sound quality uh, is better. I don't know. We'll see. We will see. <laughs> All right. So, so, so apparently, there's a lot to talk about. What, what, what are we? What's, what's going on? <laughs> uh, yeah. I guess first thing, uh, parking minimums. Parking minimums. Um, I saw on Twitter that it looked like the planning commission in Lexington has voted to um, basically remove parking requirements for developments happening in Lexington. I think it still has to go up in front of their their council for vote, but it's a good first start, right? Yeah, totally. Could could you uh, just describe a little bit what the significance of yeah. parking minimums are? Yeah. So um, I think basically look around, right? If you're in Louisville or Lexington, you see the uh, the consequences of parking minimums, um, and it's not all always the sort of result of land development codes sometimes it's because you know developments when when developers borrow money um, banks require them to have a certain amount of parking so anyway in the code uh, in most cities you'll have uh, that have a land development code will have parking maximums and minimums depending on the type of usage and uh, the location or zoning. So in Louisville, we have sort of a two-tier system, right? We've got zoning uh, codes, and then we also have form districts. And I think the, I, I should know this, I do know this, but now all of a sudden I'm second-guessing it because we're talking in front of microphones. But um, basically it's the usage in the form district that set the, uh, the, the minimums and the maximums for mm -hmm. parking. And so what it does is obviously it, um, it has an impact on the, just the urban fabric construction where it happens on a particular site, those kinds of things. So it impacts the way our cities look and feel. And I think removing parking minimums is a good step towards one, better developments just, you know, functionally, aesthetically, uh, but two, it starts to encourage um, eventually, you know, the, the in consequence of, of removing parking minimums is that you end up eventually hopefully having better transit systems, right? Because everybody can't have a car in the place that they're visiting um, or living or whatever, right? So it should increase some density or at least increase density of usage. Like if you think of Bartstown Road, it might be kind of hard to park on Bartstown Road in certain areas. But um, so you have businesses sort of so hopefully that stack up, that line up, that, you know, it can be on the street and aren't required to basically take a portion of their land and designate it to parking. 
Yeah. And like you said, I mean, Louisville does have like no park, no parking minimums in some areas because of our form districts, form districts, zoning districts are a, a little bit, you know, different things here. And I know some people have questions about, well, you know, what even is the, the difference between um, a form district and um, a, a zoning district? And I guess to sort of, you know, take the words out of the mouths of Metro level planners, I mean, looking just at their direct definition, zoning districts regulate land use, density and intensity of the development. And the form districts are looking at like the building height, uh, the form of the buildings, the setbacks and the other design elements like the parking. Um, but you talk about these parking minimums and I think it's really interesting. They get talked about a lot sort of in urbanism circles about, oh, we could, you know, we got to get rid of the parking minimums. You know, and I think what what you see, you know, in, in some cases is, you know, we have gotten rid of the parking minimums for downtown Louisville per se through the form district. Right. But what has that resulted in like functionally and in reality? Just because you don't have a parking minimum, I don't think necessarily means that developers are going to come in and build a bunch of dense, you know, buildings that don't have any parking with them. Maybe that maybe this hopefully for a place like Louisville does that that does result in like at least smaller parking lots for like buildings in the core. And I guess I think the other form district that's going to have no parking minimums will be the I, I'm getting the, I'm totally botching the name here, but like urban traditional center or something the urban some center soon. urban yeah. uh, urban center neighborhood form yeah right yeah, yeah. That, that one will also but i think what we need to see here in louisville is like people actually developers and builders actually taking advantage of that policy because just because there's a parking minimum doesn't mean that they're not still going to build a lot of parking around it and i mean just the parking thing is ridiculous in louisville i mean you've got you know there was one i pointed out on twitter i think last month that um that breakfast place over at a uh, high uh Bardstown and Trevilian. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's the biggest. It's one of the biggest parking lots for just like. I mean, this is a business that closes, and that that you would think that that area would be considered that urban um, center neighborhood form, right? I don't know if that is going to be that or not, but it, it meets. It fits the bill. There's housing nearby. There's businesses. You think that like a walkable commercial intersection, but anyway, that that breakfast place closes at two, right? And they've got like 120 parking spaces. It's well, unbelievable. And right? they may have a model that says they require to maximize their parking, right? So they may say, okay, we want to get you know, four spaces or five spaces per thousand square foot of building space or something, right? Because that may be what they're all their own sort of internal, right? The client base that goes to that particular establishment expects to drive there. Those are some of the challenges, right, that you come up against because yeah. that's what they do. I mean, I just see like a challenge of getting like developers in this part of the world to like understand like for them to even get financing to build something that doesn't have the level of parking that uh, a bank, you know, would would in these parts would expect for them to have. Like people that are reviewing these development proposals are going to be like, "Wow, you've got you know a hundred units of, of of housing here, but where is everybody going to park?" And then the questions as as a proposal goes through, you know, various committees and commissions. Well, you want to do this, and I know that this. This new ordinance says that you don't have to have a, have a parking minimum, but the neighbors are concerned that they're going to take their parking. Like, it's just, I don't think it's like, is as easy as just saying, oh, we got no parking minimums anymore. Right. Everything's freaking great. And it's all going to work out. Like, I think there's so much more to it. Like, Absolutely. You, all the time, and Patrick Puma, feel free to just elbow me out of the way or something. <laughs> but all the time, like any given project we see, you deal with, okay, what are the minimums and maximums required? How's the developer going to get the bank to loan them money? It, let's say they don't, 
because we've had examples of projects we've done in neighborhoods where there are no minimums and the neighborhoods struggle, right? Because they're worried, as you said, um, that they're going to lose spaces so or lose their own parking, right? So there's so many layers to it. And, you know, I think we can sort of hope and ask and try and put into place uh, these kinds of systems, but then there is also, and I, and I don't want to say it's all on each individual, right? I don't want to be that person, but I think we all do have a personal responsibility to try to uh, minimize our own automobile usage. Yeah, yeah. And at some point, I want to share what I've done. Yeah, of, of, of course. <laughs> Hang on, but, but, just, but, but like, we can't just go straight from like having this sort of loads of service parking lots and tons of auto dependency to like there's no more parking minimums and now like you know no one needs to worry about uh all all of all of these bad consequences we don't have the urban form really to really have no parking that's what the point you were trying to make like we don't have good public transit we don't have safe streets to bike on i mean it's, it's is it almost like chicken and egg kind of situation just like with you know the the housing or or first or grocery store first you know question for like a place like downtown like is like okay do we take away parking to try to catalyze these denser areas or do we first do something about the ability to get around without a car you know i mean all these things are wrapped up and it's it's way more complicated than that but um again i just think people overestimate i think the importance of this parking minimum policy and getting rid of them because there's a whole lot of other stuff that needs to happen to make this make sense um, in a way that's really going to impact the urban form of the city. I think that, the no, in, the, the, not having a minimum, especially like downtown, at least, you know, we haven't had a lot of development downtown lately. I mean, we've got the Greyhound thing that's coming online and things like that, but I think it just helps some of the people who want to revitalize the buildings that are here where you don't need, you may not, you may have a building that you can get eight units in, but you typically would be underwater if you had to provide parking so it makes it possible to take some of these buildings that desperately need to be inhabited and do something with it without having to go through an extra hurdle that's a great point well in just real fast you have to at least start with the removal of parking minimums Uh, right i I agree i I agree it's just not it's not a silver bullet you know like no unless anybody's and i don't want to come to this place where like i'm arguing making an argument against yeah. an argument nobody's trying to make. No. I just, I, I just, I, I see it come up so often. Um, it's an important thing to happen and, and probably most people understand that a lot more needs to happen. I just wanted to make that, make that yeah. clarification or that, that does that, that distinction. Uh, speaking of places that don't have parking though, uh, there's been an interesting story, story bubbling up just straight out of like, um, neighborhood citizen action. So basically, there's like a, a court of um, a, a pedestrian court of shotgun houses down off of uh, Preston Street, um, kind of in the Merriweather um, neighborhood over close to U of L, close to Schnitzelburg, um, right kind of where the train tracks split um, Preston um, in half. But there's a walking court and there's a business nearby that wants to totally, they've bought a bunch of the property and they want to tear it down. And the neighbors found out about this and um, have really have started sort of a grassroots campaign to save this this pedestrian walking court. And um, I know I know you guys both are interested in, in these ideas of, of walking courts and have, have been around to a lot of them. I, I, I'm not saying it's like I think it's unique to Louisville by any means, but we do have some and it, it, they are relatively kind of a, a scarce thing. I just wanted to know if either of you guys wanted to talk a little bit about 
your experience with walking courts here, the history of walking courts here in Louisville, or just just what's up? What is what even is a walking court? Walking courts are pretty amazing, kind of a urban form, the residential form that we don't see being used anymore. But Louisville has seemingly a lot more than a lot of cities our size, and uh, you find them a lot of times in the kind of older uh, streetcar suburb neighborhoods. Uh, there's one that's uh, called Ivanhoe that's off of Bardstown Road that uh, I know a couple people that have lived there or live there still and it's just this amazing kind of form where you and at least in this one you go up some steps and then you have 40 homes on this kind of they all face in on each other uh, where you have shared green spaces and there's kind of like the semi-private kind of you have a front yard but then there's a shared kind of walkway down the middle and everybody kind of polices themselves as far as leaving toys and things out there. But uh, it's just this great kind of form where people, especially with families and things like that, being able to let your kids run around and not have to worry about running out in front of a car or anything like that. And then behind the houses are two alleys that are kind of the access points for, for like dr uh, garages and things like that if the houses have them. But it's... It's just something that I feel like would be really great to see happen more or in new developments or infill projects. Maybe it needs to be a little denser, but um, it's a way that you can still have that kind of uh, single family house with and be a little bit tighter form and you know less wasteful of the actual private and public spaces. So, so it's for the one on, on Lawton, um, I, I guess, you know, seriously under threat of being completely demolished. Um, gosh, I don't have the map in front of me, but I think it was at least like 15 shotgun houses, something ar around there. And um, so, you know, the just a couple of, of, of neighbors, uh, one from Merriweather and um, some folks from Shelby Park got together. They raised $500 to do an application for landmark status uh, for Lawton Court um, to try to get these buildings um, protected. And, and I think really just in an effort to um, you know, raise awareness about the fact that uh, housing are, is getting chipped away at. Like we we don't we're not really sure in some cases who's even buying housing. Um, or we, we can talk a little bit about this new um, Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting story about who's been buying some houses all over Louisville. But um, in, in this case, you know, they've got the landmarks application in. Uh, it looks like it's going to go to one of the preservation um, landmark staff at Metro, and they're going to. It's going to go up for some kind of pre-hearing conference, um, and then there'll be chances for the property owners to, to sort of weigh in and understand what's going on. And um, I think it'll be open to the public to comment on. And then once all that's done, uh, it looks like the a committee of the Landmarks Commission will uh, review the, the sort of overall report that this um, Metro Landmarks preservation person puts together. And then um, I guess from that point, it's a possibility you could go to a full Landmarks Commission review um, then to a public hearing, and um, and then if the commission decides to designate the property, Metro Council has like two months uh, to, to, to file a resolution to review that decision, and uh, if they don't file a resolution, it's official. But I mean, it looks like, I mean, some of these things in the past, I'm trying to remember a specific one, no, oh, probably the Oddfellows Hall, right? Like, um, where these things pretty quickly get embroiled in like identity politics, through Metro Council, so I mean, I imagine you'll if, if imagine if say this does get through to City Council through the Landmarks Commission, the, the Landmarks Commission doesn't just shut it down on its face. Um, 
I mean, I, I imagine you would see council people from various political persuasions, you know, talking about how people can do what they want to do with their property, you know. So, and that'll be the, I mean, that's a big thing in this part of the world and in America in general. So it'll be interesting to see um, where this application goes. I mean, have you guys checked this area out on a map? Have you, you know, been around there? Would you think that this area is like, I mean, I think obviously we don't want to get rid of any housing, right? But I mean, some of these pedestrian courts are like brick. They're like clearly, um, you know, substantial, like old kind of architecturally, like interesting looking homes. And we're talking about a, like, you know, old wood shotguns for Lawton Court. And um, I, I think that that is a form, in my opinion, definitely worthy of preserving and saving. Um, I, I guess there may be some question, though, like what kind of rehab these particular houses may need if they were saved. I have a lot of questions about how, how a landmark status would work for this whole thing. I was curious if you guys had any also. The landmark status is for the whole court? I think so. Yeah. 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 I mean, I've been by this a bunch of times, uh, and I've never walked through the court, but uh, it's the location where it's at, right by the expressway, and kind of this uh, non-functioning kind of intersection with the train tracks and everything on Preston that we've been talking about uh, before. I, I don't know. I mean. Well, yeah, that I mean that location is extremely interesting to me because I mean that used to be an intersection, a functional intersection before the 1960s, and because of urban renewal and interstate design, they you know broke that part of town purposefully for those off ramps, and we're right now currently in the process of something called the Preston Corridor Plan, which is that very street and the point at which that street is broken. So it seems like this sort of perfect time and idea to think about that problematic area that you just sort of diagnosed as, you know, being an issue with that pedestrian court is it's there by that crappy train track cutoff and off ramp situation. Shouldn't we be fixing that through this Preston Corridor plan? Like, shouldn't that be like a major issue of the Preston Corridor plan to like revert this because what they're like even the the zoning there is enterprise zoning which was a scheme from 20 years ago to sort of spur industrial and commercial development through these this it, like areas zoned for enterprise zone which was kind of crazy because they made like 80 square miles of it so it seems like kind of like a sh shotgun blast rather than a targeted strategic approach what the the vision of 20 years ago of letting this old neighborhood human scale place gradually become like an industrial transportation you know mega transportation zone that's coming like this is the last chance to unravel that i guess is what i'm saying and, and should we unravel that i don't know this seems like a bunch of cool neighborhoods are right around here why do we want this to be an industrial railroad off-ramp area it's all those things right and it this particular court is surrounded by what looks like industrial properties um but but larger if you like zoom out you know it's yeah it's surrounded away, by you've got the urban neighborhoods yes with that like jelly donut core of crappy industrial like yeah. which a lot of which is historically there because of the the railroad itself yeah. you know back in the day like that railroad was you know had all kinds and it still has businesses up and down that railroad but i mean that was like a core of neighborhood commerce that you know that that mm -hmm. railroad um, I, I guess back to the idea of like the landmark status for um, Lawton Court itself. I mean, don't you think like the form, the idea that it is a pedestrian court, 
like alone sort of is like enough meat on the bone for, for it to be a landmark. Like there's not a lot of them. They're kind of special places. And we, even though the houses may not be the best examples of shotguns or they may not be historically, um, uh, what, God, what's just the word? I can't think of the right word, but they may not be like the perfect shotgun, but still it's, it's, it's the place as a whole, right? Out of all the ones that I can think of, the 20 some different ones that I've checked out i don't remember any of them that actually had shotguns on them as well and these shotguns are tight too i mean they're like right up next to each other the only reason that i I was even questioning about the value of saving this place was more coming from the research and everything that i've been involved in with uh, air quality around expressways and that like Mm -hmm. within 500 feet of an expressway is where all the brake dust and all the kind of stuff that's like good for you falls and this is like well inside the 500 feet it's just like i i don't know i i just see things a lot differently now and when i see something like this i'm like i would not live in one of those houses too close to the interstate yeah Yeah. you would have to like really airtight the building and then what's the quality there but that's just my opinion because of all the research that I've been involved in. But I do think that pedestrian courts are worth being on a national registry for sure. Well, you know, speaking of like sort of so, so this company that was sort of next door, I, I think there's some kind of defense contractor. I'm not even sure what kind of widgets they make in there behind their uh, razor wire fence. But, uh, you know, like I don't know that anybody was really on many people's radar that they just bought up a bunch of these shotguns. And I don't know if they bought them in all one fell swoop or if they've been kind of buying them up over the years. But it sort of illustrates this idea of like who is buying these sort of small um, single family homes in our urban neighborhoods in Louisville. And man, did um, the folks at the Kentucky um, Center for um, Investigative Reporting really drop an interesting story earlier this week. Jacob Ryan, great, great reporter with KYCIR, had this story, a corporate landlord's takeover spotlight racial inequities and displacement fears in West Louisville. And they really, I mean, there's been some other stories kind of in this vein from other cities and states. There was a really good one from the Charlotte Observer a few months ago, looking at just like the tens of thousands of properties that these various sort of um, big major corporations are just like buying up uh, houses in, in neighborhoods. So they did, they, they delve into this for Louisville and they focused on this one company called um, Amherst and looked at all of the, 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 the houses they've been buying and like they, they sort of mapped them out. Uh, they have a good uh, data uh, guy over there, Justin Hicks. And they like sort of, they found, you know, some really interesting numbers on, 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 on uh, gosh, what is it? Like almost 1300 single um, family homes have been bought up by these folks in like a five, six year period. I mean, that's like staggering. Like that's like, I mean, and some streets have like, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten homes that these folks have bought. I mean, and this is, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons why this isn't a good thing. I mean, primarily, which, I mean, this is taking away opportunities for people to build wealth in their own neighborhoods and to be like a, um, a homeowners within places that they've grown up, that their families have grown up. Because, I mean, it seems likely that like these, once these companies own these things, they're, they're, they're going to be in that portfolio for a, a very long time, you know. Um, possibly into the point where these things disintegrate into vacancies, you know, in the future. So I, I, don't, I didn't have a ton to say on this. I just thought it was a really great piece. Definitely check it out at KYCIR. Uh, good maps and a really good just thinking about what it means to sort of be a homeowner and what homeownership means in this really new phenomenon of these massive corporations buying up houses. Well, and I think the understanding the consequences and just having a conversation about the consequences of that, right? Um, 
what does it mean when you know the bulk of neighborhoods are owned those properties are owned by a corporation and you know we know that there tends to be when when you have home when you have places neighborhoods that are owned by the people living there there becomes sort of a a self-care self-preservation people feel invested in the place right and so they um they take care of it more they make more demands from their city right to fix and repair things and all that and and so what happens when everyone rents you know and um it's something it's interesting it was a conversation we were having yesterday with some council people during a walk uh in a neighborhood but also it's a thing that i've been thinking about a little bit you know i went to germany over the summer and you know you take a country like germany the bulk of the people live in rented units right you get into these villages cities towns whatever so but it's a different approach right as far as like just because those people are renting from um whoever they're renting from i don't know if those are government owned or or what but um because those the city the government sort of takes care of the infrastructure you know the place uh you you sort of by proxy get buy-in and from the people that live there right because they're in a place where it's taken care of and i just we don't have that here in the united states it seems if you're in a poor neighborhood um you're out of luck mm-hmm. <laughs> you know as far as the resources having the regulations and things in place to keep people from letting these houses get to a point where they because I mean, there's nothing, you know, it's it's great. A lot of people rent and that, that, but when you get a corporation and like this article is talking about, there's sightings with, uh, I think, doors falling off hinges and like grass isn't being cut and things like that. And, you know, I mean, there's the punitive thing of like the grass cutting, which is like, uh, you know, then it affects every, even people who own houses, but can't get out there to do, do the maintenance. But the real issue is like the safety and like kind of you know broken windows and, and think broken pipes things like that that like make a place unlivable like there's it, i don't know enough about this but i feel like those are the kinds of things that make yeah. create these problems yeah. when you have like a, a person who or a, comp, a corporation who owns this who does they're only looking at the bottom line and they're not really invested in the community they're going to let things slide a lot more than like I own two houses down the street and like I'm going to be people know how to get a hold of me who owns the house if things go wrong. I mean, just looking across the river, um, you know, into Ohio, it's just natty a little bit. It looks like uh, the state um, has has I don't know if it went through or not in, in the legislature, but they're preventing these kinds of people from buying up, you know, foreclosed properties. Um, like, like that's going, I think that's going to go into state law over there. I need to look more into that. Hopefully I'm not totally botching that. But even in Cincinnati, there's the, um, the Greater Cincinnati Development Authority. They like got it together, put together like 15 million and bought up 195 of these kinds of houses that would have been the prime sort of target of these kind of Amherst style corporations. So, I mean, like cities themselves can buy these properties, put them into some kind of land bank or some sort of uh, affordable housing trust. And I mean, that, so that's what we need to do is like, and we're supposed to be getting a ton of money underneath the, um, the COVID relief money for the affordable housing trust. So maybe that's exactly what 
we need to be doing is like preventing that. But at the same time, just this, this Amherst is just one company. There are right. other companies doing this in our community, and Amherst already has thirteen hundred homes. So how many how many other ones do, do some of the other ones have? Like how are, how behind the eight ball are we on this? You know. Well, in in the land bank's not always the the best solution. I mean, I know that the three of us were here uh, when there was a mayor. You you know the urban design studio hosted. Um, a mayoral candidate to come in and sort of just listen to people who sort of worked within the, you know, the built environment, right? So architects, landscape architects, planners, developers and stuff. And it was brought up that, you know, in the case of, say, Metro Louisville, properties get purchased, they sit and fall apart. And then they auction them off for nothing or whatever and then move, you know, to another or they sell them off cheaply. I mean, I don't know what the solution is. Land banking may be that solution. Or affordable housing trust also. Yeah. Buying the whole houses. So that council, you know, there's some council people with a lot of big talk about, oh, like we're going to do something about this, you know. But I think what it really comes down to in a place like Kentucky is like, what can we do when we're talking about people's private property that they purchase, whether they're in state or out of state? And we have a state legislature that is very pro property rights, and that is that is very in a lot of a lot of capacities anti Louisville, and they're not going to. What what is it? This is America, right? People can go buy property and do what they will with it. What 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 can our city council do to prevent this um, outside of just buying them first? Like, I, 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 I'm not sure. Like, I think council could, you know, blow a lot of hot steam and be mad that people in Frankfurt aren't aren't getting their back on this and fixing this problem. Uh, that's where I see it going. I mean, I don't, I don't see like a, a law that says people can't do this. Like, that's not possible under our system. Um, but what is possible? Uh, I don't know. It's a fascinating story. Yeah. Go check it out. Uh, KYCIR.org. Um, there was some news that came out uh, this morning that the um, yet again, the the Nulu streetscape construction um, has been delayed probably for at, at least a year, maybe another couple of years. It looks like there was some sort of mix up with uh, the public works department and the utility um, around being able to get uh, access to some some buried uh, gas lines that are always going to need consistent work and apparently this slipped off everyone's radar this project we've been talking about since 2008 uh, is now still not going to happen there's some funny quotes in the story who, who had a career journal um, Caleb Stoltz had this, had this written up new loose streetscape construction delayed at least a year due to planning mix-up uh, there's some really great quotes from some of the business owners I think one of them being that like whole new businesses have come and gone <clears throat> as this has been talked about, people are basically just, the business owners themselves are very skeptical that this project's ever going to happen at all, given how long it's gone on, even though there's been money for it. But I don't know if either one, do you want to take a stab describing um, what this East Market Street, um, Nulu District streetscape even is, like what, what what's cool about it, um, what's up with it? Uh, I don't know all the details about it, but uh, I was just thinking about this a couple of days ago when we did the uh, tactical urbanism salon on uh, the 800 block of East Market Street and it, the idea back then it was like in 2013 and Mike Lydon came into town and we worked with a bunch of people to transform one block of the street to kind of mimic uh, Olmstead had designed a linear like treed park 
that ran in between the two the lanes of traffic and so we tried to show what that might look like by bring using forklifts and bringing in trees and things like that and it just reminds me that was 2013 when we were like testing these ideas out yeah. and it's almost almost 10, 10 years, years ago later. yeah so i mean the project really is like um kind of taken out the, the, any one of the eastbound lanes um like all that weird angled parking which i, I think is kind of strange personally that's all going to be reverted to parallel parking which i think will make a huge improvement i uh, we can argue about that i'd love to in fact if you if you if you like that angled parking i don't, I don't see the advantage of it Installation of curb extensions, improved crosswalks, um, expanded amenity areas in the sidewalk, which I think will come from taking back some of that angled parking. Separate bike lane, which we just can't seem to pull off in Louisville. Like maybe this, this the hope was like this might be the first real separated bike lane. And we, we, we've, you know, we've had almost 12 years of somehow uh, a mayor getting away with being called Mayor McBike Lane, even though we don't have anywhere near comparable bike lanes to, to Nashville, to Cincinnati, to Indianapolis. We have awful bike lanes, but somehow we have Merrimack bike lane because that's this like culture wars, like big time diss from Republicans to say about our mayor. It's not even true, but anyway. Um, additional trees, landscaping, green infrastructure, and a raised medians, love the raised medians. That, that's sort of like the thing. And I guess a big problem with the, the whole idea is that a lot of the local business people are like, oh no, like th like this is going to be so. They're talking about like eighteen months of construction on this or something. They're like, it's so much construction that it may drag. And then right coming, I guess right after COVID, like this this some of the business owners are like, this could put me out of business if people can't drive down here to come to my business. So I mean, that's a very valid concern, you know. I mean, I would like just that's, that's something that's out of their control. Um, but again, I mean, this is harking back to where we started this whole conversation about the city just being so auto dependent and oriented. And it's like we we have this plan and the money there to do this thing to make the city less auto dependent. But we can't do it because the city's so auto dependent. Like, I don't know. I think there there are components of like that construction argument you made that it can be really hard on businesses. Uh, I think it was hard on 4th Street when they did the, um, the 4th Street improvements. And that was uh, basically, you know, 4th Street was only getting started to sort of get any kind of commercial activity, and then they blew it up, right? Um, just the, con the construction just makes it impo not impossible, but very hard for business owners. So there's, there is some valid validity to that. You're right. I mean... How is it that we don't have separated bike lanes, uh, you know, 12 years into this, this mayorship? Um, because of the pushback. I mean, yeah. it's really hard to get funding and things to do stuff when you're getting, bland, getting called Mayor McBike Lane for the, stuff, the small stuff you are able to get done. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. Louisville has consistently been 10 years behind everybody else, right? Behind all the surrounding uh, cities. And so maybe the time is now. I think mm -hmm. I know that we've, we've done a lot of work on those kinds of things. And, and I think... There are sections of like the Louisville Loop that is, it's a, it's not a designated bike lane. It's a multi-use path. Um, I know we have some differences about what we think is value, val, valuable sort of use of that space or where you place that effort, right? 
but I think there are some projects that are about to come online. You know, they take forever. Yeah, I mean, it's just a real, like, you, local advocates, you know, come, like, identify places that could work well uh, for this kind of connectivity, for these kind of facilities, you know, places in urban neighborhoods. They take these ideas to advance planning. Advanced planning is like, this looks like a great spot for this. Let's do public hearings. Let's have meetings. And it seems, and the council people, they're like, yeah. And then like it's moving along and then at some point it's like oh some some somebody at public work says this can't happen because it's like one inch too too thin or narrow or something and it's like all of that work and talk is out the door and because of some you know engineering guidelines from a, a document that some cities don't even use it's going to shut down you know like hours and, and months of work and planning in a place that should clearly have a separated bike lane because people are riding through it i mean that's we need leadership to move us past that and, and to get us into a place where we can ride a bike in the city without the fear of dying. But Patrick Henry, you were saying that uh, you know everything takes forever, and I was thinking about this uh, just the last couple of days because of drive up and down Bardstown Road, but the improvements that are being made to the Bardstown Road oh, corridor with yeah. the bump outs or the uh, curb extensions, however you want to call them, uh, I mean... Less than a year ago, less than seven or eight months ago, I guess, I walked around with somebody from KYTC, uh, Kevin Bailey and uh, and uh, Ben Bodkins, and we walked up and down the corridor and just kind of marked off where where do you think a bump out could go to kind of slow down? Okay, so a bump out helps helps to slow down the traffic. It basically extends the curb out into the parking uh, lane on a street and uh, narrows the walking distance that somebody has to have to cross the street. And it also kind of mentally makes people have to slow down just because they don't have four lanes of roadway to, to breeze through. But so we walked around and we had, we came up with like 20, I think 20 some uh, locations where we could do these kind of like triangular wedge pieces in different shapes that really went with uh, the the form of the or whatever was needed for that particular location and uh they're going to be planted a lot of them are going to be planted with like hedges and things so there'll be more trees um and that all took place i know that you know councilman cohen when he was in office he did like a parking study or uh, not a parking study but a safety study of the corridor mm -hmm. so that was you know years ago like six years ago maybe so it's not like it happened overnight and somebody snapped their fingers, yeah, yeah. but from the point of marking where we might be able to put bump outs to now they're in concrete and being put into the ground and Amazing. things are changing. Like, I think that's one of the fastest I've ever seen a project like that happen. Yeah. And it's all because like a lot of the people just were working together and things kind of came together with funding and all that made it yeah. happen. And, but I, th I think that that probably some of that groundwork that the council person, you know, Cohen had done probably greased the skids for that. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. um, and there's a it, lot of people too. I don't want before I forget. I mean like, you know, uh, councilwoman Casey Armstrong, uh, she and like the friends of Bardstown road and, and you know, a lot of people came together to kind of really push this effort and i don't think it would without like the friends of bardstown road and other advocates really pushing this that it may not have even gotten done but uh yeah it, it takes a lot of people but also if you have advocates who are really you know put their foot on the gas and try to yeah. make stuff happen it gets done 
the, and I also think COVID worked in your favor on that. You know, there was removal oh, yeah. of the, um, and I think you guys may have been involved with that removal, but the removal of the, the sort of the lane switch thing that's been there for as long as I can remember, um, all those things kind of helped sort of fell, fall into place to make that happen. So it's a great project and it's cool to see it happening. You also um, have a, a, a director of transportation at, at Kentucky right now who used to yeah. run Lexington. So that's was right. the mayor of Lexington. So And he was the one that got the Town Branch Commons done. So he gets it and is like understands like the urban context a lot more than in the previous kind of transportation cabinet stuff. All right. Well, it's been a great um, first episode back in the new studio, the new urban design studio. A lot of stuff coming. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Gonna I think uh, Brian Manley, J. Todd Duckery, the Smacks for our uh, fantastic theme song. Check us out. Hit us up at underscore city state on Twitter. Uh, that's where you can get in touch with us. Uh, comments, complaints, concerns, criticisms, all directed at underscore city state. And uh, hopefully we'll be doing another one of these uh, before another three or four months go by. <laughs> hopefully we'll be more regular. Can't wait to hear what this sounds like uh, in Adobe Audition. All right, you guys. Uh, peace. We'll uh, talk soon. Peace. Yeah.